Well, last Lord's Day was Christmas Day. We spoke on the subject. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. A Merry Christmas to poor sinners. The angel told Joseph to call his name Jesus, for he'd save his people from their sin. The angels told the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And yet these people hardly grasped the magnitude of the gift the world had received. The promise was astounding. Christ Jesus saves His people from their sins. Without that salvation, we're all doomed to judgment and hell forever. Even believers often fail to grasp the depravity, the pervasiveness, the damning reality of our sin. To begin to understand it, start with the greatest commandment of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Then in the same chapter, God told the people that if they kept all His law, that would be their life. That promise slams the door of hell after every single one of us. For who can love God perfectly as He commands us according to His law? Jesus repeatedly embraced that great commandment as essential and an ongoing requirement of the law. In Romans 1, Paul pounds more nails into our coffin when he describes how every man knows God's eternal power and deity from nature itself, so that we are all without excuse before Him. But knowing that, we all refuse to glorify Him or be thankful to Him. In Romans 3, we're found to be unrighteous with no understanding, and none of us seeks after God, none that doeth good, no, not one. We have no proper fear of God. We are all utterly condemned by the law. These passages have a startling practical consequence. Everything that a lost man does is sin. The Bible tells us even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Anything done without faith is sin. For without faith it is impossible to please God. All our so-called good deeds are condemned by God. We are all an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's no one that calls upon God's name or stirs up himself to lay hold of God. But men are so pleased with their freedom, thinking they decide everything for themselves. Without God's determinate counsel or ordination, they think incorrectly that this complete freedom is what gives God the right to hold them accountable for their sin. But the Bible tells us that in fact we cannot choose all by ourselves to do anything good. Every act of an unregenerate person, a lost man, is an act of sin against God. That's because no one of themselves can act in love for God or perfect fear of God or faith in God or gratefulness to God. All our free actions are sins of presumption against God. But false teachers and lost men don't want to hear the truth that of themselves they always choose to sin no matter what they do. They want to think that they can choose to do good with their free will. They will not acknowledge that only in Christ, only by the power of the Holy Ghost, can anyone do anything good and acceptable to God? Every drink of water, every so-called noble act, every diligent labor, every love of others in a lost man is an act of rebellion and sin against God. Scripture tells us lost men are, quote, unable to please God, unquote. 
None of our acts as lost men are taken with God's glory in mind and perfect love toward Him. We are dead in sin and cannot do anything truly good in our natural condition. Paul said, in our flesh dwells no good thing. It is deeply offensive to lost men and a lot of Christians to be told that everything they do is polluted by their sin against God is therefore unpleasing to God. They that are of the flesh cannot please God. So where is the hope for poor sinners if nothing we can do pleases God? There is a Savior coming, however. When He came, it was to save His people from their sins. The truth is, in our flesh, it is all actually bad that we do. And that offends most people. But Jeremiah grasped this truth when he wrote of the coming Messiah and foretold that He would be called by this name, the Lord our righteousness. It is only the righteousness of Christ that clothes His people, makes us acceptable before God. We don't contribute our own deeds. We don't mix our works with Christ's. We don't cooperate with God in the saving of our souls. Our only hope lies in the obedience and blood of Jesus. He came clothed in our humanity to die in our place and take away our sins and justify us before holy God. Jesus satisfied and obeyed all the law in the place of His people. God imputes His perfect obedience to our account. There is one final point. Most presents start out delighting the recipient, but as time goes by, they lose their luster. They break down. We grow tired of them. We grow out of them. And then they're put away and forgotten. But not so the gift of our Savior. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The longer we believers possess this precious gift, the longer we believe the Gospel, the longer we meditate upon our blessed Redeemer, the more we will treasure Christmas gift of our Lord Jesus. Truly, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. But last Sunday is a Merry Christmas for poor sinners. So that might leave some people with the question, well then how can anything we do as believers please God? After all, we still don't love God perfectly with our whole minds, body, heart, and strength. We're still not grateful enough to God. Our gratefulness, our love, our fear, they're all imperfect in our bodies. And we read this morning from Matthew 6, Jesus' warnings about doing good deeds with a bad attitude of self-aggrandizement. He told us that we must give our alms in secret so that people won't praise us. We should pray in secret so that people won't praise us. We should treasure up in heaven our treasures rather than collecting them all down here. But it is true that in the flesh nothing can please God. Romans 8 at verse 5 had this to say about our activities. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity 
against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You see, there's another argument that if the mind of the man without the Spirit, which is what this means, the natural man, man in his unregenerate state, is really enmity against God, well, everything that it does is in the context of its being an enemy of God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So then they that are of the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And he goes on to say that if you have anything of Christ, if you're Christ's, then you are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And here he introduces this idea that even as we are saved, nevertheless our body is a thing of corruption and death. There's nothing in our flesh that can please God, but because of the Spirit that dwells in us, because we are in Christ, that is unto us life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. If the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, then He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. So it is true that as we act apart from the Spirit, if we can act apart from the Spirit, even as believers, then whatever we do is not going to be pleasing to God. And yet, Jesus made it clear that His people do please God. You remember the story in Matthew 25 of the great judgment when the king appears in His glory with His angels. He separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And then He tells the righteous some of the things they did that he counted as worthy and praiseworthy towards himself. Visited me in prison, fed me when I was hungry, clothed me when I was naked, so forth and so on. And they said, but Lord, we don't remember doing any of those things. And he says, inasmuch as ye did it to the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. Now here is a concrete demonstration that the Lord's people who have been declared righteous for Jesus' sake, who are His people, the sheep of His pasture, that they do indeed do acts that God remembers, not for salvation, but He does remember that they did those things and He expresses His approval of them to believers, this ought to come to us as an astounding revelation that we can hardly grasp or be able to bear. That God sees some acts in His people whom He has saved as being good and noble, held in remembrance by Him, even if His people cannot understand how that could be. It is what it is, as they say. Now, so long as men pursue their own righteousness by law-keeping, all of that is sin. All of that is immersed in sin. None of that is pleasing to God. One way we know that these people in the judgment weren't pursuing 
their kind deeds for their own righteousness to get themselves in good with God to try to satisfy the law so they could be declared righteous is that they didn't recall any of those things and in fact denied that they had taken place. The truth is that Jesus kept all the law in our place. And when we say that, we have to disentangle the further truth that He kept all the law, including the great commandment. That is, that as He kept the law, He did so in perfect love of God His Father. He did so with perfect fear. And He did so with all His heart and with all his mind and all his body and all his strength. Quite frankly, that just exhausts us just to think about it. We can barely stumble through a facial obedience to God's commandments, much less do it with all that intensity and heart and spirit. But Jesus did. He kept all the law that way, and He did it for His people, for the credit of His people, if you will so that His righteousness might satisfy the demands of the law on our behalf and His righteousness and obedience might be laid to our account, imputed to us. That perfect obedience, which is not only obedience to the law, but also obedience in conformity with the requirement of the great commandment, a double perfect obedience, if you will, is credited to us. What did Paul write in Second Corinthians 5 at verse 21? He hath made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. There is that double imputation of our crimes against the perfect sacrifice and His perfect obedience credited to His poor, lost people whom He has redeemed. So Jesus has taken away all of our sins in His own body on the tree, including that sin of not acting in perfect love and gratefulness and fear and faith unto God. He took that sin away from us too. And He has wrought for us perfect love and gratefulness and fear of God. He has taken away our vain efforts to obtain our own righteousness by law-keeping. So that now, under the Spirit, God sees our deeds in the Spirit as we are clothed with this perfect righteousness of Christ. And He is well pleased with us for Jesus' sake and well pleased with our good deeds for Jesus' sake and on account of the fact that in our execution of those deeds, He has taken away all the sin of failure to comply with the greatest commandment and to do all those things with a perfect heart. We have credited to us the perfect heart of Jesus. Now in Philippians 2, at verse 12, we read this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now here is the means by which 
what we do under the Spirit of the Lord is rendered, as it were, in a noble way because God is working in us to desire and to actually execute His good pleasure. He is doing this by His power, not in our own flesh. We're not doing it under our own steam. The Holy Ghost is working in us to carry these things out and to do it in a manner that's pleasing and acceptable. And this is why we do this in fear and trembling, because it is an awe-inspiring and astounding thing to recognize that whatever we do that is of any good, that is of any acceptableness to God, not for our own justification, but that He might take pleasure in any of those things, it's done by the power of the One who is working in our minds, hearts, and bodies to desire to do and to carry out all these things. So you see, this is an antidote against pride. Anytime you suddenly recognize you might have done something pleasing to God, it's not because you're so great or because you have such a perfect heart or such a noble mind or such pure thoughts. No, it's because there's a power from God working these things in your mind, heart, and body. And then in Ephesians 2, after spelling out our deadness in sin and God's mercy to resurrect and regenerate us by the Spirit and save us by His grace and change our hearts to trust in the sacrifice and none of it being by works so that there can be no boasting, then in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we read this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are the workmanship of Christ. He is the one working in us, not ourselves, after the flesh. We and our workmanship are created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works. He has made us a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're new creatures in Christ. The purpose, one of the purposes, the practical purpose, is that we might exist and live in good works because God has before determined that we should walk in good works. So now He is working this determination of God out in us We are His workmanship. It is a work product of God's power and not of our own steam. And that is why it is acceptable and pleasing to God. Now we are made by God to be accepted by Him in His beloved Son. And we see that described in the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. You see, He chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. But what was the purpose? That we should be holy and without blame before Him. Well, 
The Lord Jesus has rendered us holy and without blame by taking away our sin and by laying upon us His righteousness for our filthy rags. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, and there's the motive of God, this is what He took pleasure in doing. This adoption of His poor lost people by the blood of Jesus in Christ as His own children was the good pleasure of His will. He did it because it pleased Him. Now, some people will argue because they hate the doctrine of election. That makes God self-centered, someone who seeks after His own pleasure. But that's what the Scriptures teach, that God is entitled to seek after His own pleasure because He's the Creator. He's the Sovereign. He's the Ruler. He's God, eternal and unchangeable and almighty and omniscient. Who's to say that it's wrong for Him to take action to please Himself? You know, we're told not to act to please ourselves, but we're the creatures. He's the Creator. He does all things after the counsel of His will. He does all things according to the good pleasure of His will. And then it says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It results in there being great praise, infinite praise, cried out for the glory of God's grace to us, His free gift to us. I had someone last night tell me that love seeketh not its own. I said... That's God's commandment to His creatures. It doesn't apply to God. He can seek His own. He can, as this verse says, do all these things so that He might be praised, the glory of His grace might be praised. I mean, all of, all of the book of Ephesians is a tract about how the grace of God is glorious and it is meant to heap praise upon the God who provided the grace and did the good deeds and was kind to the poor sinners. That's the whole point of it is that He might be praised. Don't tell me that God's love is somehow defective because He works all things according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. But then look what it says, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. In that grace... God has made us accepted in the Beloved. Now this idea that we're accepted by Him in His Beloved Son is an astounding thing. Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on it, which I won't quote. But to be accepted, that is to be embraced, to be taken unto Himself with a happy heart towards us, we who are rebels and sinners. By His grace, through His Son, God has made us accepted. And then it says, He's made us to be accepted. That is, we didn't do anything and then come to Him and say, Ah, I accept you. He's the one that made us acceptable. He made us acceptable, not we ourselves. We didn't decide that we want to be acceptable to God now. And so come to Him and say, I've decided to be acceptable to you. I want to let you know, no, He made us to be accepted. We were dead in our sins. But then it says, accepted in His beloved One. That is, that the position that we have is that because we are in Christ, nipped to Christ, taken unto Him, 
crucified with Him, raised with Him in newness of life that is in His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased in the Beloved One we are accepted. And you remember, of course, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He clothed His Son in human flesh that He might have a body with which to suffer death for His people, that He might lead many sons to glory. He was made perfect in that suffering. He was made an offering and a sacrifice. God withheld not His Son, His only Son, but delivered Him up for us all. That's how it was that we came to be accepted, that we were made to be accepted in His beloved Son. Then he goes on in the next verse, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. That is how we were made accepted in the Beloved. Christ's sacrifice took away our sin. We're redeemed by His blood from all transgressions, iniquities, and the curse of the law and judgment and wrath of God. We're given forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus. And all that, of course, is because of the riches of His grace. That is the riches of His grace. That He offered up a lamb. That He provided an offering. That He made... Christ, His dear Son, our Redeemer. And that we'll see in the next chapter, of course, where we already saw that then He made us alive by the Spirit and He gave us faith to trust in Jesus so that we might lay hold on the means by which God has made us accepted in the Beloved. Now there are finally three declarations of God's being pleased with our deeds wrought in Christ. So you can disregard all of the discussion as to how it is that the Lord's people and their deeds done by the Spirit, done through the work of God in their hearts, are pleasing to God and are acceptable, but then you have to deal with texts such as these. There are probably more, but I'll only talk about three. First Peter 2 to whom, that is Christ, coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. There's Peter speaking of Christ coming and being rejected by His people and by the rulers and by the world. But for those who come to the living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You see that when we are brought to the living stone and we're built upon Christ and in Christ by the power of Christ, why then we are built up into a spiritual house. He's making a reference here to a temple not the Old Testament temple, but rather a spiritual temple of which Christ is the foundation stone and His people who He has redeemed are spiritual stones built up, just like Paul said in Ephesians 2 later on in that chapter. And we're made a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So here is the priesthood of all the believers. We're not talking about the Pope or His minions living or dead, 
the Melchizedekian priesthood they claim for their parish priests so-called is nonsense and isn't taught in Scripture. Only the Lord Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest. But we are unholy priesthood. And what do we offer? Do we offer animal sacrifices? No. Do we offer the body of Christ? No. We offer spiritual sacrifices, which is explained in other places as praise, glory, worship, honor, adoration, and good deeds, acts of charity, all sorts of things are deemed by the Scriptures to be spiritual sacrifices. And look at what Peter says, they're acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you see once again, all that we do that is acceptable to God is in, by, and through our position in Christ according to His work, according to His cleansing sacrifice, according to His perfect obedience in which He kept all the law in our place and for us and did so in perfect love, fear, and reverence and knowledge of God in all His heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. So here's a declaration. doesn't matter if you understand how it works exactly. But Peter says that the Lord's people who are built up upon His foundation stone into a spiritual house are made a spiritual priesthood, a holy priesthood, offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then secondly, Hebrews chapter 13, we know this passage well, when we come to Christ outside the camp, where we have a sacrifice that we can eat of. That is referring to our feeding upon the body and blood of Christ, His real body, His real blood, being our sole source of life and health and strength and everlasting glory. But then it says, By Him therefore, that is Christ, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate, that is to share, to help people in need. Forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He's not pleased with anything done in the flesh. He's not pleased with anything done by unregenerate man. All of those things are sin and noxious before Him. But in Christ and coming to Christ and being in Christ and feeding upon Christ for those people, we are exhorted to offer the sacrifices of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks, doing good, helping other people. And the writer of Hebrews assures us that for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And then finally, in Philippians 4, and verse 14, Paul is talking about the Philippians helping him in his physical needs. Ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction, that is, sympathize with and help. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye went once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound 
I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. So Paul is praising them for being faithful in representing him, sympathizing with him, praying for him, and providing material support to him, which now Epaphroditus has brought these things unto Paul from you, Philippians. But then look, they are an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Here is an assertion by Paul that when the Lord's people, acting by the Spirit, not seeking after their own justification by their own law-keeping, but rather being in Christ and doing these good and noble things which the Scriptures exhort us to do. To God, this is an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing. Now, you know, that's an astounding thing. Because in another place, the offering of Christ is described as a sweet-smelling savor. And perhaps the truth of it is this, that the offering of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the redemption through the blood of Christ that saves the Lord's people and our being in Christ and God working in Christ upon us and through us unto good works, that all of these things are mingled together, not because we cooperate or work for our own redemption. but Rather, God sees them because they are done in Christ He sees them in the same light, by the same attitude, under the same attitude as He receives the work of Christ on our behalf. Because He has credited us that sweet-smelling savor which Christ wrought when He hung on the tree to save His people. And now because we have been transformed and made new creations and raised together with Christ, now... These things which we do, which God has ordained that we should by the Spirit and in Christ, are also themselves an odor of a sweet sacrifice to God. So the exhortation for the new year is don't sit on our hands this new year. Don't pretend to be fatalists, thinking that no matter what we do, whether we do this or whether we do that, everything's going to turn out the same way anyway. Fatalism is not taught in Scripture. Rather, the Scriptures tell us that God brings about what He has ordained by the means that He ordains, and therefore what we do, what we do makes a difference to the future. It doesn't change what God ordains the future to be. It brings about by little and little. It brings about. God uses the things that we do to bring about His purposes. And so therefore, we should not be afraid to take action according to the Spirit, in obedience to the Scriptures, to do good things, to love the Lord, to praise Him. We don't need to sit on our hands this year. We need to seek to please God in Jesus Christ. That's our mission. But for our righteousness, we only trust in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And so don't fall into the mistake of giving yourself any credit for your obedience as if it 
contributes to your position before God. We're justified only by Christ's blood, not by our own deeds. How God can be pleased with us in Christ is difficult for us to understand, especially if we've taken some knowledge of how disobedient in our flesh we are and how nothing that a lost man does without the Spirit can please God. All of it is sin. How God can be pleased with us in Christ may be hard to understand, but He gave us His Word that He is. And that is the posture in which we enter into the new year to the praise of the glory of God and His marvelous grace. And so now around the Lord's table, we celebrate what Jesus did. We celebrate how He died on Calvary's tree to save poor wretches and sinners. How there's nothing in ourselves, nothing we bring in ourselves. We contribute to sin. We bring our sin, as it were metaphorically, to lay on the head of Jesus and to cry out, Oh God, judge my sin in this Your dear Son that I might go free. And that's the promise God made. And it's the sacrifice that Christ ordained that we should recollect each Lord's Day and that we should understand the truth that upon His physical flesh and blood all of our life depends. And so we partake of Him spiritually as our necessary food and we rejoice in what He has done for us. He has made us, God has made us in Christ Jesus acceptable in the Beloved. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night that He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood shed for us on Calvary's tree. O oh God our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son and in the sacrifice that He made and that there was found in Him a Lamb to be slain in our place that could take away our sin and overthrow and displace all the old animal sacrifices that were but types and shadows pointing to the Savior. And we thank You that He is our Passover Lamb because when You see the blood, You pass over Your people and their sin, knowing that in the blood they have already been judged. Our crimes have already been judged in the person of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And we thank You that because of this great sacrifice and because of the cleansing of all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus, we are accepted in Your beloved Son. And You are for Your own good reasons happy to receive our praise and our thanksgiving and our kindness and our efforts to help other people and to do noble things in Your name. Help us not to be prideful of them, but help us to do them knowing that You are working those things in us, that it is not of our own power or will or decision or choice, but Yours, and that we would dedicate them to Your glory and use. 
and that you are pleased to receive them for Jesus' sake as sweet-smelling savors, sacrifices in His name. But we thank most of all for this sacrifice that He made that takes our sin away and for His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 38 in the black book. To Thee, O Lamb, to Thee once slain, be endless blessings paid. Salvation, glory, joy remain forever on Thy head. Isaac Watts, him, behold the glories of the Lamb. Number 38.